Well, hey, New City, welcome uh, back to the final week of Colossians together. As we begin, I want to start talking about first impressions. We've all had first impressions of other people and other things, and as we know, first impressions can maybe carry more of a significant impact than they maybe we might hope that they would. So, for example, if you uh, maybe have met someone at some point and had maybe a negative first impression on that person, but then you realize what you originally thought about that person wasn't true, but it took a while for you to get there. For example, uh, if you're a part of New City, you've probably heard the story about how the first time my wife, Christina, met me, she thought that I was both weird and rude because we were in college at this, at this house and there was music playing and someone introduced her to me and I danced right by her and I didn't introduce myself to her. Now, I don't remember us meeting, so that's just what she says, but we'll go with it. But what you don't know is my first impression of Christina was that she was someone who had to talk to her mom all the time. The first few times that I saw her, we were hanging out you know, with a similar friends group and she was on the phone with her mom. And I'm thinking, you know, we just got to college, like, can you go 12 hours without talking to your mom? Now, later, we both found out that our first impressions of one another was not true. She found out that I wasn't rude, and of course, I was certainly not weird. And I found out she does not call her mom every 12 hours. <laughs> now, I share that because there are times when we read Scripture, and maybe a surface-level reading of the text may lead us to believe something that it isn't actually saying. And that is where we find ourselves this morning as we close our time in the book of Colossians. And so I just want to begin with this question in mind. Is the Bible oppressive? Like when we read scripture, there are things that we like that Jesus says to love people and to treat others how they would, you would want them to treat you and all these sorts of things. But then we get to other parts and we think, wow, the, the Bible seems to be outdated or regressive or it seems to be holding people back. And that's the question we're going to be looking at as we look at a text this morning. Is the Bible oppressive or with a little bit of study and maybe understanding what the, first, uh, what the, what the original readers would have heard when they, when they read or listened to a particular text, does it show us that there is something else going on there that we might not quite understand if we just read a text and go over it? And that's where we find ourselves this morning. This morning, as we finish our time in Colossians, we'll be in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, verses 18 through uh, chapter 4, verse 6. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is a little bit different than normal. Normally, we go through the text, and I kind of uh, share some stories and make some points as we go through it. Today, I'm going to go through all of the text first, or most of the text first, and then at the end, we'll take a few minutes for application. And so today is going to be a little bit more technical, uh, maybe even somewhat feel like a lecture a little bit, because we're reading a text that causes a lot of confusion, and I think what we'll see is if we spend a little time understanding what's actually happening, it's actually quite beautiful and saying something maybe radically different than we would assume. And so if you can hold on with me as we go through the text, I think we'll be better for it and it'll be beneficial as we end. And so in Colossians chapter 3, uh, we're going to be starting in verse 18. Again, the context behind Colossians is Paul, in around 62 AD, is in prison in Rome, writing a letter to the church in Colossians to, con to, to encourage them to continue to grow in spiritual maturity. And this letter has been all about Jesus and his supremacy and how he is king and how he is Lord and how he has saved us. It's not about what we do, it's about what he has done for us. And in the last two weeks, Paul talked about because of that, because we've been saved by Jesus, what does it look like to live out our faith? What does it look like to flee from sin and to honor and love people? Not so that God will love us more, but because God already has love, loved us, what does it look like to be a representative of him and how he has changed our life? And so the last two weeks we talked about that, and this week we shift the focus as we end to maybe the family relationships, husbands, wives, children, and even slaves in this time. How does this impact the family dynamic? And here's what he says, starting in verse 18. He says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So already we read a verse in, in our modern Western American context. We, we read that and we say, ooh, what do you mean submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord? That seems uh, repressive. That seems uh, that, that's holding women back. How are we supposed to take this? Now, what I want to do again, I want to take a few minutes and help us understand what Paul's actually saying, given the context that he was in and how the original readers would have understood it. What's actually fascinating about this verse is how we read it and we take something completely different, given our cultural context, than the original readers. Here's what's going on. Uh, Paul doesn't tell wives to obey their husbands, 
but to submit to them as fitting to the Lord. Now, this idea of submit, this word submit in the Greek gives the connotation of a modest cooperative behavior that puts others first. He's saying, wives, cooperate with your husbands. Now, what's interesting is that he uses the word submit instead of obey. See, in that culture, you would have assumed that Paul would tell, his, tell women and wives, particularly, to obey their husbands because that's just what you did. But instead, he is giving, this, giving women and wives this radical idea that just because something is culturally acceptable, aka obeying your husbands and whatever they say or do because they are the legal responsible person of the household, that you don't do it just because culture says to do it, that a wife ultimately... Uh, must put their allegiance to Christ just like all of us should. That they don't just go about obeying whatever their husbands tell them, but they cooperate with their husbands, they follow their husbands, they work with their husbands, but more than anything, they submit themselves to their Lord, not to their husbands. Now, a couple of things that's why this is significant. Uh, Generally speaking, we may or may not know this, uh, that Christians were not thought of fondly in the first century. I think sometimes we have this inaccurate view of thinking, we just need to go back to the early church and we just need to do what they did because the culture loved them as they were. That's actually not true. What we see, historically speaking, is that some people who had personal relationships with Christians in first century Roman Empire were definitely positively impacted by them. They were moved by their compassion and by their love for one another. But by and large, most Roman citizens and people in Rome looked at Christians as arrogant and rude and people who thought of themselves maybe better than other people. And the reason why is that because in first century Rome, religious life was tied to your civic life. Everything you did was kind of bound up together. And so if you joined a trade guild or if you had any sort of of, uh, you know, any sort of uh, maybe holiday or celebration that was happening in your city, there, were, there would always be sacrifices and prayers to uh, the gods of the Roman Empire and their local deities of that space in which you live. Now, of course, Christians would not participate in those things, which actually made them not able to participate in a lot of normal Roman life because they obviously did not want to submit uh, and sacrifice and worship idols. And so Romans looked at them as arrogant because they assumed that Christians thought they were better than when Christians were really just saying, we're going to worship Jesus no matter what it may cost us uh, socially. Also, what we need to understand is that in the first century Rome, women had no real formal education at all. Which is why this is significant is because to suggest, as Paul does here, that in some way women could be their own person was odd. It was odd for Paul to say, women, you can actually decide for yourself what does it look like to live culturally in your world, but more than anything, submit yourself to the Lord. You can decide what that looks like. And it's also one more thing that's significant for us to know about this verse is that in first century Rome, fathers and husbands had the legal responsibility of the entire household. So for example, in our culture today, if you have a child who grows up and commits a crime and I don't know, gets put in prison, the parents are not held legally responsible. Well, in first century Rome, if somebody in your household, whether a spouse or a child or a servant or a slave or any uh, other family relative, uh, uh, other relatives in your family lived with you, the father of that household was legally responsible for everything that happened. And so as Paul is doing here to open up the door to someone other than a husband having total authority was an attack on social order at that time. To say that wives, you should submit and cooperate with your husbands, but don't do anything that is not honoring to God would be in some way an attack on the Roman social order at the time. And so again, we read, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, as maybe repressive and holding women back, they would have read this as very progressive and being like, wow, women actually can have minds of their own and they can follow Jesus as best as they know how. Verse 19, Paul continues by saying this. He's saying, husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Now, again, for us in 21st century Western American culture, we read this verse and we say, well, no duh. Of course, husbands should love their wives and not be bitter towards them. In the first century, 
they would have read this, uh, this verse with a completely other mindset. So here, here's what we need to know. That this seems, again, like strange counsel. Why? Of course, husbands should love their wives and not be bitter towards them. But again, what's interesting and what we may not understand in first century Roman Empire and really most of human history, but especially in the context in which Paul is writing, is that marriage was not about loving one another. Marriage was seen as something that you do uh, to have children and to continue on the family legacy. It was not about love and it was not about sacrifice to one another. And in Paul's time, what also makes this odd and interesting is that men, of course, therefore did not have to be loving and certainly could be harsh with their wives if they wanted to. Legally, there was nothing wrong with doing that because that's just how culture functioned at the time. Again, as legal authority, the men could actually do whatever they wanted. But what does Paul say? It's not about what you can do. It's about what you should do, which is why in this verse, when he says, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them, or in other passages in the New Testament, like Ephesians chapter 5, or where Paul tells husbands to lay down their, their, their lives for their wives as Christ did for us, that, men, that he's calling men as husbands to react to their wives the same way Christ has done for us. And that although Christ has the, the legal right or the ability to do whatever he wants because he is God, what does he do? He lays down his, his rights and his abilities uh, and his, uh, what would be maybe easiest for him to say, I'm gonna give my life so that anyone who wants to follow me can receive grace and mercy and truth. What he's saying to husbands is in the same way, even though legally you can do whatever you want, you ought to follow Christ's example and, and lay down your life to love your spouse. Again, Paul's goal as we read what he's talking about, family dynamics, particularly in the first century, is how to live within one's cultural framework, but still live in obedience to Christ. How do they and how do we in our cultural framework in which we live still live in that cultural framework, but more than anything, still obey and submit to Christ? How does it, what does it look like to live countercultural, not to kind of stand out just to stand out, but say, I'm going to live and, and honor the culture as best I can, but not place my allegiance to culture over my allegiance to Christ. That's what he's telling husbands and wives to do here, to love and respect each other in ways that is odd to your culture, but not odd as someone who follows Jesus. And then he turns to children, verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasper exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. So again, you'll hear me say, here's another interesting thing. For us, again, we read this passage, children obey your parents, that makes sense. Uh, you know, fathers, parents, don't exacerbate your children. Uh, don't verbally abuse them or physically abuse them. That makes sense to us. But to them, this meant something radically different. You see, in this time, children were actually viewed no different legally than slaves. They were property of their father since the father was the head of the household legally. Even, get this, even when they were grown and married, until their father died, they were still actually under the authority and they were technically property of their father. Now, this is probably a good news in the sense that life expectancy wasn't as long back then as it is now. And so if you were, let's say, a 50-year-old uh, man in Roman first century, your father probably was not still alive. But as long as he was alive, you actually had to obey him as his legal uh, property and as his, you know, under his Authority, And so it's interesting that Paul addresses children here, just like he addressed wives, because it was culturally strange since they had no rights, right? Children had no legal rights, and fathers could do with them whatever they wanted, right? They could, they could verbally abuse their children. They could physically abuse their children if they didn't like something that their kids were doing. And yet, what does Paul say? He's encouraging children in the fifth commandment, right, to honor your father and mother, and also for parents to care, and fathers particularly in this context, to care for their children well, to do what is best by your children. Why? Because it is pleasing to the Lord. Not just good for, you know, social family dynamics for spouses and kids to love and honor one another, but because it, it displays the paradoxical uh, self-identifying love for others that Christ has for us. 
right? This idea that it's not just about what we want, but it's how can we love and serve other people? And he's saying fathers, parents, but probably fathers in particular here. Just because you can do something, you ought to love your children well, support your children well, display to them the grace and mercy and love that God has displayed for you. And then he turns to slaves next in verse 22. He says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Now, again, we read this, and he's saying, okay, obey your human masters, uh, work for the Lord, not for them. It, it makes us feel uncomfortable. Now, again, for the cultural context for which Paul is writing to, it would have made them feel uncomfortable, but in a different way. Again, it's interesting here that Paul is addressing slaves, right? He's, why would he address slaves when they have no say, when they are viewed as less than in this culture? Why would he address them, right? Like women and children, slaves even more so, even though they kind of thought they, they didn't matter, but like women and children, slaves as human beings have the ability to think feel, and have responsibility, right? What Paul is saying is that no matter who is over you, no matter who is over you, you first and foremost live and work for the Lord. What Paul was commanding the slaves to do was radical. Now, there could be a lot said here about slavery and how do we approach it and what Paul thought about it or what first century Christians thought about it. But what I want to read to you is I want to read to you a quote by David Garland, who's a biblical scholar. To kind of, he can kind of sum up in a few sentences quicker than I can why what Paul is saying here is so radical, but in a good way, even though on the surface level reading for us, it might seem oppressive. Here's what he says. He says, most took for granted that slaves were morally incapable of deciding to do good. They assumed slaves were helplessly controlled by their passion and steeped in villainy. Consequently, they needed to be handled as if they were witless children. That's how the slaves were viewed in the first century, right? So Paul treats Christians, Christian slaves as morally independent individuals fully capable of Christian virtue. God will not overlook their wrongdoing just because slaves who are supposedly not responsible or because they are not slaves who are not supposedly responsible for themselves. They are responsible they are responsible for themselves and being in the miserable condition of slavery even being a victim of injustice does not excuse returning evil for evil or even half-heartedness for evil. Right? It's even an example for us that just because someone mistreats us today as followers of Christ, even though everyone would say, well, you have the right to pay someone back. Paul is saying that is not what we do as followers of Christ because we know we have the grace and inheritance of God waiting for us. What's interesting here is that in the first century, we might be saying, well, why doesn't, God, why doesn't Paul just say slavery should not exist at all? Here's what we need to know. That in the first century, Christians could neither change nor ignore slavery. Like they had no power to change anything about what's happening in the social structure. And so it also would not be wise to simply ignore it. And so what Paul does here is he does not sanctify slavery with these commands, but instead subtly undermines their very premises while encouraging obedience as an expression of loyalty to the family group of which they were in, right? He's not saying slavery is a good thing, but what he is saying is that women, children, and slaves actually are their own moral responsible agents, which is why it should be no surprise as you live these values out that it is Christians who historically who led the charge against abolition, abolition of slavery everywhere because Christians say, well, if this is true, then this ought to change how we treat people. The last thing we'll say here before we kind of get into maybe some more practical things is that what Paul is saying, again, is that slaves, women, and children are not property to be managed, but people who have responsibilities and decisions of their own to make. And above all, even here, slaves will receive an inheritance just like all believers in God's kingdom, which, by the way, would have been an extremely offensive idea in first century Rome. Again, this is part of the reason why Romans had such a problem with Christians, because they are telling slaves, you have an identity, 
you matter. Oh, and by the way, in God's kingdom, in this life, it doesn't matter if you are a man, woman, child, slave, or free. None of that matters. We all have equal access to God, and in his kingdom, we will all be equally participating in the life and the grace that he offers, that he offers. And so with that, here's the last verse uh, of this section, chapter one, uh, chapter four, verse one, and then we'll get into some practical uh, application here for a few minutes. He says this. Lastly, he says, masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Again, interesting that Paul addresses masters uh, because, again, it, they legally could do whatever they wanted to their slaves. They could beat them. They could mock them. They could mistreat them. And he says, that's not what you do. As a follower of Jesus, you do not do that. You treat people justly and fairly because just like uh, you, you are over your slaves, Jesus is over you and he will do the same with you, right? He's saying you can do whatever you want legally, but that is not how followers of Jesus live and operate. Paul is saying here that slavery is wrong, is, is wrong, right? Essentially, this is not a good thing. And what's interesting is why, last thing that's interesting about this is that we would say, God, Paul, God, in, in, in your scripture, in the New Testament, why don't you just come out and say slavery should be abolished? Why don't you just come out and say this is wrong? I think part of the reason, and I, I can only speak for my understanding of the subject, so I'll just grant and say I could be wrong here. Uh, but uh, the Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, are written by human authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But given that, they are writing in a culture and context in which they live. It, it seems uh, to be uh, quite impossible or incomprehensible for anybody in the first century to suggest that slavery should be abolished. Now, of course, we see that now as, well, that's obvious, but back then it has been the course of human history. Slavery has always existed. It's always been part of the economics of every culture. For someone to come out and say, let's abolish slavery, I don't even think it was comprehensible for Paul or anyone in that time to say that. But what we do see instead is that Paul brilliantly shows the value of human life, regardless of social customs, while changing the hearts and the minds of people. Right? He's saying in the context in which we live, here's what it looks like to love and care for other people, which again is why it is not surprising at all that it was Christians historically who led the charge to abolishing slavery as they had uh, the ability and prominence in social life. Because if this is true, then we've got to do something about it. And last thing that is quite fascinating is that it is largely believed that when Paul wrote the letter to Colossians in Rome, at the same time, he also wrote the New Testament letter of Philemon, uh, which, also, which, which is about Paul writing to a slave master named Philemon, asking him to release his slave Onesimus so that his whose slave has been a faithful uh, follower of Jesus and he wants to join Paul in his work of ministry. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon asking for the release of his slave. Now, he writes these letters together and it is highly likely that these two letters, Colossians and Philemon, would have been read right next to each other or in, in joint, in jointly together to the churches that these letters were spread to. So they would have read here, treat your slaves with honesty, uh, love, respect, and justice. And then they would have read a letter about Paul literally asking a slave owner to release his slave. And so this is what the gospel does. Again, last thing we'll say, read one more quote, and then we'll get into some application because I know this is a touchy subject. There's a lot more that can be said of, of women and children in slavery, but here's what Garland says again. He says this, the idea that women, children, and slaves could also act in an ethically responsible way is scarcely considered. The gospel in which there is no Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, recognizes each individual as a full person and is concerned to protect each person's rights, not to enforce his or her subordination. Wives are to be treated with love, children with understanding, and slaves as human beings deserving of justice in a time when slaves were not legally regarded as a human. These commands also address wives, children, and slaves as responsible moral beings, full members of the body of Christ. The commands acknowledge the authority of the husband, parent, and master, but those with power must exercise it with love, sensitivity, and justice, and must be willing to take the role of a servant just as Christ did. Now, for us today, here's what this, this leaves us. Uh, this text does not tell us how to order our families in 21st century America. It doesn't tell us what does it look like for us to, to 
be the proper Christian household, if you will, today. But what it does show us is that every family member and really member of society at large must allow submission to Christ to guard our behavior. If you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus guides an honor and respect to him and submission to him guides our behavior. And this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And so practically, I want to just share a few points here. What does this look like for us? Here's what I want us to know. That who you are guides what you do. Who you are guides what you do. See, so often we get so focused on what do we need to do that we don't understand that it's who we are that actually guides what we do over the long haul. See, what we often want is that we want quick and specific answers, right? We want God to just tell us what to do, right? But, what, but if you're part of New City, one of the things that we often say is that God wants our hearts. He doesn't just want us to do or not do certain things more than anything else. He wants our hearts, which is interesting because then some people will then say, well, the Bible is irrelevant, right? The Bible is irrelevant. But I would say this, because I'm reading scripture and I, and I don't see a specific answer to maybe what house should I buy? Or where should I live? Or where should I move? Or who should I marry? He doesn't tell me these things, so it's irrelevant. But what if, what if what God wants for us is more than just one decision? What if what God wants for us is more than just simply one decision, but a life of faithfulness where he changes our hearts? Who you are, God's what you do. I think of it this way. I've got two kids, Finley, who's five. Uh, she is kind and compassionate and loving. She's the type of kid that makes you feel like an amazing parent because she doesn't want to get in trouble. And if she does get in trouble, she says sorry. It makes you feel like you know everything that you're supposed to do. And then I have a two-year-old son named Roman who is... A lot of strengths, but he's very different than his sister. He goes from zero to 100 in a second. He knows what he wants. Uh, He's 100 miles an hour. And so there are often times where we have to tell Roman, don't do this or do do this. We We have to be on him a lot more then we have to be on him than on his sister. But what's interesting is because he has an older sister who has strengths in areas that he probably naturally does not have, he has learned things. So for example, Finley is a lot quicker to share her toys than Roman might be. But because she has grown up, uh, Roman has grown up with an older sister who is maybe more kind and compassionate than he is at times, he has emulated some of these behaviors because he copies everything that she does. And so for example, there are times where, where Finley asks for a toy and he actually gives it to her because she has modeled that for him. Now, what does it have to do with this? Uh, as Roman grows up, I don't want every time something happens for, him to, for me to have to tell Roman, as he's playing with his friends, share your toys. Roman, share with your friends. What I want to have happen is for him to develop a heart of compassion for others, where he doesn't always have to be told what to do, but because he cares about other people, he will know what to do because who you are guides what you do. And what, what, also, what this also means, if we take it a step further, is this, that how we treat others is determined by who we are. How we actually treat and relate to other people is determined by who we are. You see, part of the tension with passages like this that we read this morning is we don't like the idea of this idea of unfairness of putting others before ourselves, right? In our culture today, we don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We don't want anyone to restrict our freedoms. We don't want anyone to say what you can and cannot do because we want to do whatever makes us happy and whatever fulfills us. But yet what we see here is that scripturally speaking, following Jesus is not about doing what you want to do for your own benefit, but how can you love and serve and treat other people? So again, how you treat others is determined by who you are. Here's what this means again, taking one step further, that in order to do what God has called you to do, you must be who God has called you to be. Before you go figure out how do I do everything in every situation, how do I make every single decision, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are, who guides what you, how you behave. And so in order to do what God has called you to do, you must first be who God has called you to be. And who has God called us to be? Here's what Paul says, Colossians chapter two, chapter four, verses two through six, the last part of Colossians that we'll read because the remaining part is just kind of his closing greetings. Here's what he says. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, stay alert in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in change. Again, he's writing this letter in jail because he's been telling people about Jesus and some of the governing officials don't like that. So he says, so pray for me that I may make the mystery of Christ the gospel for which I am in change so that I may make it known as I should. 
Act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. So even people who don't agree with what you think or believe what you believe, be kind and gracious and wise towards them. And then finally, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. In other words, he's, he's, he's telling us, here are some things that we should do. We should be prayerful, or we should be thankful. We should be missional. We should be wise. We should be gracious. These are the things that we should be doing. But again, in order to do what God has called you to do, you must first be who God has called you to be. If we are the type of people that God wants us to be, these things will happen. They will happen a lot more naturally than if we try to do it by self-will. And so the question is then, how do we do this? How are we compassionate and loving? And how do we do what God has called us to do? And how do we be these type of people? How do we do this? Here's the answer. You don't. The answer is, I don't. What we need is we need Christ to change us and we need Christ to lead us, which is why the majority of the book of Colossians is about how Jesus is Lord and supreme and God and how he changes our hearts. And so just like last week, we talk, Paul talks about dwelling with Christ. We need Jesus and his spirit to lead us towards this end so that no matter what situation we might be in, we might act appropriately. Let me give you a personal example of how this has impacted our church. And if you are part of New City, how has impacted you? Of what does it look like to be the type of person that God has called you to be so that you can do what God has called you to do? A couple oh, recently, I had lunch with someone who is one of the uh, largest financial contributors to New City Church since we began. This person actually started giving uh, to New City before we even launched and has continued to do so even to this day. What makes it more significant is that this person isn't, a, isn't physically part of our church, but has been supporting us uh, this entire time anyway. Now, Part of the reason behind that, I was, I was uh, eating lunch with this person. They, they wanted to share the story with me behind why they decided to give and why they are, have continued to do so. Now, some background for you. When we started New City Church, I personally have some relationships with some pretty large churches. And so we kind of thought raising money to plant New City wouldn't be too difficult because we know churches that had some money and we thought that they would give. Turns out some of these churches didn't really, weren't really a part of church planting, which is, which is fine. It's a story for another day. And so we got told no, that they weren't going to give to us. And so uh, this person was meeting with me and was telling me how uh, one of the churches that we asked uh, to give told us no. And at this point, they were, part, they were working part-time on staff at this church, helping them with some things, while at the same time starting their own small business. And so they're on staff at this church. They know that we asked, uh, you know, for some financial support, uh, we were told no, and this person got upset. They were like, well, you know, they could have done in one weekend's offering, could have done more than cover anything that you guys would have asked. And so she felt that God was telling her that you need to stand in the gap, right? And so they're telling me this, and they're like, well, I thought God was telling me I needed to stand in the gap and need to support you guys because the church didn't, but I wasn't really sure how I was going to afford it. And so for three days, she's like, I wrestled with this idea of what should I do? She said, finally, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to start giving, even though I'm working on my small business. And so they've given to us ever since. Even when things were tight with their business, even now during the pandemic, they faithfully gave because they said, I'm going to follow God. I'm going to do what Jesus tells me to do. Now, this person has a vibrant prayer life, has a lot of spiritual disciplines that keeps them close to Jesus. Now, as a side note, what's interesting is after I left that conversation, all the rest of the day, I was like, okay, this person says, whenever God calls you to do something, even if it's difficult, you do it. So I was like waiting for a sign from God to like tell me to do something super faithful. It didn't happen. But anyway, the point of the story is that this person was the type of person God had called them to be. They were loving, they were gracious, they were kind, they were pursuing Jesus. So when certain situations arose, they were simply faithful to how God has called them. And this is the gospel. Right? The gospel is not you do things for God to love you. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord, he is king, he is over everything, and he has given his life to you, not out of uh, desire that you plead. He's like, it's not like God's up in heaven. It's like, man, I really hope this person follows me, and I really hope this person obeys me. The reality is God doesn't need you, and he doesn't need me. But the gospel is that he gave his life anyway for us, so that we can receive the grace and mercy of God. So no matter who you are, what you have done, how old you may be, or how big you have blown it in your life, no one is beyond the grace and mercy of Christ, right? Sometimes we think that Jesus loves people and is willing to forgive people, but then we think, but you don't know how many bad things I have done. Surely God can't forgive me. And to that, we just need to understand that who do you think you are that you can tell God who he can and cannot forgive? Who do you think you are that you're going to somehow scare or offend the king of the entire universe by what you have done? 
None of us are in that position. None of us can do that. Jesus's grace is sufficient for everyone. And the gospel is the invitation to come and receive what he has given to us in his death, burial, resurrection on the cross. That he has made a way for broken sinners like you and me to receive the grace and mercy of God, for the spirit to enter into our lives and to grow us to be closer like him so that we can help as many people as possible also see Jesus and experience who he is. And so as I close this morning and to close our time in the book of Colossians, here's what I want us to leave with. If it's not about what we do, but who we are, the question is, how do we become more who God has called us to be? In other words, how do we become more like Jesus? Here's what I want us to know. Here's the, the main idea. That to be like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. To be like Jesus, you actually have to be with Jesus. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus and you don't like the results of your faith or where your faith is right now, the question is, what are you going to do differently? As we talked about last week, you are saved not based on what you do. You are saved only based on what Christ has done for you. However, the strength of our faith has a lot to do about whether or not we want to pursue Jesus, right? Our salvation has nothing to do with how strong our relationship with Christ is. It has all to do with Jesus. If you follow, trust, and believe in Jesus, you have been given the grace and mercy of God. But if you want to lean into the life and the spiritual life that he has for you, you and I have to take steps towards that end. If you want to be like Jesus, if you want to grow closer to him and emulate the way he has loved and cared for us and love and care for others, you and I have to be with him. One of my favorite quotes throughout this pandemic season has been this, that personal renewal leads to corporate change. And so what does it look like for me? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for members of New City Church? What does it look like for followers of Jesus everywhere to take this time of difficulty and anxiety and depression and stress and give it to the Lord to create habits that allow us to dwell with him and become more like him? Not to make God love us more, but simply so that we can experience more of his goodness that he gladly decides and desires to give us. To be like Jesus You have to be with Jesus. And the invitation is that every single one of us, no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, can see and experience the mercy of God. He is inviting us into himself, not because of us, because of him. Would you pray with me? God, you are good and you are gracious. And as we go through and finish our time in Colossians and as we have read about your majesty and your glory and your love for us and, and how, what does it look like to, to, to th- therefore then repent of sin and chase after you and live lives honorable to you, not to make you love us more, but so that we can impact others, so that as many people as possible can see and experience who you are, so that as many people as possible, as Paul wrote here, will be able to uh, be, take part in the inheritance that you have for anybody who trusts and follows in you. Would we be a people that are responsive to your spirit and are desiring to grow closer to you And for those that are joining us today and maybe are not yet followers of you, may they know without a shadow of a doubt that you love them, that you care for them, and that the life that they are pursuing is empty and is in vain and will not do for them what you offer for us. Would you change our hearts for those that don't know you? Would you convict them in a new way? Would you allow them to experience your presence in a fresh way? that they know that they are loved and cared for by you and that life is only found in you. Forgiveness is only found in you and there is nothing else that we can do and there is no one else that we can turn to that can give us what you can. God, thank you for being gracious and close to us during this time of isolation and things being closed and not being able to see as many people and for life to look so different than the way that we want it to look. God, I pray that we would be a people that are pursuing you, following you, and that you in turn would change our hearts closer to you so that we can be in a better position to love you and love others well. Thank you for your grace. And in your name I pray, amen.